My name's Jordan. I'll be your scripture reader today. <laughs> uh, I really will. So turn to John 1. We're going to start a new series today. Um, just doing two verses. We will work through this book. It will take me straight to retirement. Um, if we go two verses at a time, which we won't. We will pick up some speed as we get going. Um, but the prologue, the, the, the first 18 verses of this book is... Um, it's incredible and it's rich and it's packed. So we're gonna we're gonna start really slow and, and let John really bear his full weight of, of what he's communicating about Jesus. Um, just to set and, and uh, have its weight on us, uh, and then man, we're gonna jump into uh, just an incredibly rich gospel. So John chapter one, uh, verses one and two is our scripture today. I will read that, and then we'll jump in. In the beginning was. The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Lord, as we jump into this Gospel of John, I pray that we would not take your Word for granted, that we would not take these stories uh, and these truths for granted, but that you would allow us, when I think um, John's aim was when you inspired him to write this book to just be in awe of you. As he says at the end, that we might believe. That's why he's written, that's why he's written this. So may you help us to believe. Uh, for those that are here for the first time, may they believe for the first time. May they come to saving faith, realizing, Jesus, you are God who has come to save us. And for the rest of us, Lord, um, where our faith has grown stale or where we are struggling, may you Use this book, this gospel, this good news, this truth, this, this narrative about Jesus, the God-man who took on flesh and came into our world to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, to, raise in, uh, to, to be raised in victory and to share that victory with sinners who have nothing to contribute. May we be in awe of that. May it grip our souls, inform our lives, and transform who we are to become more like you. So that's our hope, and we, we ask that your spirit would come and stir in the midst of this, um, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to reiterate what, what Chad said and just invite you to next Sunday night. I, I don't want to overhype, just uh, many of you have asked how our trip was, and it was incredible, um, and it was, there were some great experiences, and, and we, ate, we ate some good food. I, I, I will say going there... Uh, it's not a place that I thought I would be cold, but I was cold, um, like all week. Um, and then I also didn't expect to be so full, but we ate really well. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready for another meal, but they were like putting more food in front of us. And so, uh, there's stories, there's, there's lots of that, and we'll share some of that. But, but more than that, what I, what I can't wait to share with you is, um, stories of God's faithfulness working through his people, through his church. And Reed did such a great job of of walking us through what it means to be a church um, on global mission and what it means to be a part of his church that is set out to reach the nations. And so as I reflect back on what God has done uh, there and, and through our friends that are there and, and getting them there, man, I'm just overwhelmed and encouraged as I was telling even uh, more stories that came to mind this week as I was telling Riley. Uh, it's just, uh, it's encouraging. And those stories intersect with our church long before 
Chad, Mark, and I set foot on the ground um, a few weeks ago. So I'm excited, and I really, so maybe you haven't come to Journey PM before. Maybe you're nervous. Maybe you think that's something that, you know, is for people who are members or have been here longer. Nonsense. Uh, it's a great chance to just meet folks. We eat together, and so it's just a great chance to come and hang out. And then it's just a little more low-key as far as the worship. And then we're just going to share that. We're just going to cast vision uh, and talk about, share stories for for that story. So maybe you've never been to Journey PM before. Just make plans to come to this one. It does help us plan for child care and food if you register. So you can do that on our website or stop by the Welcome Center. But we would love to have you uh, this coming Sunday night at 530. So just make those plans. And, and, and this is all in context of what we're jumping in here uh, in the book of John. Because John has written this book with a particular purpose in mind. Um, where other gospels, so if you're familiar with your Bible, uh, I mean, even if you're not, um, the New Testament starts with what are called the gospels, and so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and uh, if you've read, if you've done a Bible reading plan, and maybe you didn't know uh, kind of what you were getting into, or how this book was set up, perhaps you, when you were reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of it sounded familiar. Anybody get into that? You're like, I, I've read this before. This, like, I know this story. And in fact, it almost seems identical sometimes, but then there's small differences and, and, and you dig into that. And, and, and that is true. And that is on purpose. And, and, and John is also a book about Jesus. So all of those books are called the Gospels because they are about the narrative. They are the narrative about when Jesus was here on earth. There are those stories, right? And then the book of Acts is after Jesus ascends and sends out his church. That's the Acts of the early church. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a similar purpose to tell the story of what Jesus did when he was here on earth. And, uh, but there are some differences. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called, uh, this is a fancy word you might have heard called the synoptic gospels, meaning a whole lot of their information overlaps. They share a lot of the same stuff, same stories, even verbatim, same language a lot of times. In fact, Mark is the shortest one of those books, and you'll find that 90% of what is shared in Mark is also covered in the other two Gospels. But then you have John, and John's an outlier, or a maverick, as some have called him. His, his book is, is totally different. 90% um, of his material is not found in the other Gospels. It's completely unique. Uh, the structure is different. Um, the other Gospels are, are um, often strung together with what is called pericopes, just these small stories that are semi-related, but they're, they're kind of just strung together in a thematic form, right? Jesus did this, and then he went and did this, and there's a lot of um, kind of more succinct, just saying what he did, whereas John has got longer narratives, longer interactions with people, conversations even with people. We, you, you know some of these stories from John chapter 4, the woman at the well. There's a conversation, Right? John chapter 8, where the woman caught in adultery, there's, there's conversation, there's dialogue with the leaders, there's writing in the sand. There's, there's just a different, um, almost style of stories. There's a different um, approach to telling the stories. And so, why is that? And there's a lot of talk about synoptic gospels and the information and, and this and that. And, and there's some purposes to that. There's some particular purposes uh, that are really practical, because if you just read the narratives uh, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, it could be led to just really feel like Jesus' ministry here on earth was perhaps just a year. It's John that walks us through the details of stories, and we see him going to Jerusalem three times for Passover and for celebration and booth. And, and it's John that makes it really clear that Jesus' ministry was no less than two and a half years, pro probably three and a half years. 
And so it's John that slows down and gives a different perspective. So why the differences? Why, like, why were there four written and not just one? Well, there's, there, as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's, they're, they're written by different men, inspired by God, but for different audiences and for different um, purposes to convince different audiences, and they come from different angles, right? Um, and so Matthew's really concerned with making sure we know that Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah, right? Luke is, is writing more from the skeptic and the, and the Gentile perspective where he's putting together a, a really clear, like investigative journalist type of narrative um, where he's interviewing all these people, putting this together for a, a non-Jew to, to make sure that they know the glory of who Jesus was. John is, is written uh, later. And so we see that John has some different purposes in mind because one of the primary purposes for the, the synoptic gospels the, uh, the, the, the three, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, their, their purpose is primarily to, um, like, were written in the 50s to 70s range. John's going to be a little bit later. And the, the issue for the church in that moment when these gospel writers were compelled by God to write and, and led by God for what they were going to write, the compelling issue was that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. That was the thing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing about primarily is to convince, to make sure that it was clear that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. prophecies. And specifically, to explain to a people who were still under Roman rule how it could be that the kingdom has come. This kingdom that they've been promised, the kingdom that they've been longing for, they're looking around going, we're still under Rome's hand, Rome's hand. How is it that the kingdom has come? And so you'll see that's a major point for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're talking about the, the, the kingdom of heaven. They're talking about the kingdom of God. They're talking about how it has come to bear here on this earth and how it is an already and not yet, and it is a greater kingdom than what they had their sights set on. And so the synoptics answer the question of the kingdom in a different way, um, but, but they, they're explaining that the kingdom is coming in a different way than expected. And Jesus' messiahship was vindicated and confirmed through his resurrection and is, is exalted at the right hand of God. So that's their big idea is to make sure that uh, they know that uh, people know that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and that his resurrection validates and confirms that he is who he says he is and that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. John, however, is writing somewhat later and the church is confronted with different challenges. John is writing to a church that's struggling with um, false teachers that are challenging the deity of Christ, claiming that he's not fully God. Others are questioning his humanity, denying that God could become a human being. Right. So, so John, is, is the, the issue of Gnosticism is starting to grow, this, this idea of, of really not a, uh, there's really not any value in the physical world, everything like of value is, is the spiritual world, and we, we really you know, don't need to, to worry or, or be involved in that, and that the physical world is to be minimized. This, I, Gnosticism takes a lot of different forms and flavors, but that's starting to grow, and there's people that are starting to say, well, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't really God. Like, he was just a, he was a, you know, he's an incredible man, and we should, we should worship him perhaps, but he's not really God. Others were saying, there's no way he was really man. Like, the, there's no way that that part of him was true. Like, yeah, maybe this is a God man. Maybe he did come back from the dead, but that's just like he was an angel type of spiritual figure. He wasn't actually man. And John, from the beginning, from his opening lines, confirms with, with absolute simplicity and yet incredible, profound language 
both the full deity and the true humanity of Jesus. He says, the word was with God and the word was God. So this is John's approach. He says himself, you can go to the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, John says this, um, this is why I'm writing this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So some would take that and say, see, John is, John is a gospel that's written for people who aren't believers. They should read it, and that will help them believe. And, and I would say that that's true. It's a great book for somebody who is uh, learn, wanting to know more about Jesus, who you're discipling, who's early on. I, telling them to start in John is a, an incredible um, like easy, accessible story about Jesus. It's, it's awesome. It's a great place to start. But it's not just that. This idea of that we might believe in his name, that we, that we might um, have life in his name is an ongoing belief. It's a continuing to be stirred to worship and a stirring to, to hold fast to this belief in Jesus. So um, one, I think, theologian, or it's been described by, I think, multiple, that John's gospel is a gospel that uh, both children can, can wade in kick around, play, enjoy, and elephants can also swim in simultaneously. That there's beauty in the simplicity, that you can read it with no background, no religious training, and be stirred to believe and worship Jesus. But at the same time, after 30, 40, 50 years of following him, studying him, this book is packed with profound and incredible truths that will cause you to stir even deeper and further worship and trust of Jesus. And so this is the agenda of this author. Now, who is this author? Well, it's John, okay? It's a self-titled book. But there's some interesting like, things to remember about John. You'll see that also in that, that chapter 20, uh, they're, they're talking about the disciple who Jesus loves, and there's this incredible story between Peter uh, and, and, and Jesus, and, and Peter's you know, getting restored, and he's, you know, Jesus is post-resurrection, telling Jesus or telling Peter about his role. And, and then he sees, like Peter and John look, look back and they see, or Peter and Jesus look back and they see John walking. And, and it's referred to, that's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and, and Jesus is telling Peter uh, about what kind of death he's going to die. And Peter looks back and goes, well, what about him? What are you going to do with him? And Jesus goes, if I want him to remain until I come back, that's between me and him. You do your thing, Peter. That's a paraphrase. But there's this affirmation uh, in that moment of the disciple whom Jesus loves. The author then goes, and this is he who is bearing witness to you about these things. That this is the author of this gospel. It's John. John of Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of, of three. Uh, Jesus had his disciples, to, they were 12 in number, but then he had his three that he was really close to that, that, that kind of uh, got the invite to, to, you know, things like the Mount of Transfiguration and, and other deeper conversations. There was, there was the 12, and then there was the three. And then even within the three, there was the one that Jesus loved. It's an affectionate term. It's, it's a best friend type of description. This is the one who is reclined against Jesus's shoulder, his bosom at the, at the Last Supper. This is John. This is the one who is so close to Jesus that when Jesus is dying on the cross, 
he commends his mother, his beloved mother Mary, into the care of John. And as far as we know, John cared for Mary. Mary probably lived in his home for the rest of her life. This is a rich uh, brotherhood, like deep friendship that this man shared with God as he walked the earth, with Jesus Christ. This is the man who's bearing witness about these things. This is who's writing this. Now think about that. Think about that in all of its ways. The weight that it carries coming from such an inside source, but also the, the validation of who Jesus is for someone to have been so close to him for so long to seeing Jesus at his worst when he's tired and he's hungry to see the humanity of Jesus on such full display. And then to have cared for his mom. Don't you, don't you wonder about those conversations after Jesus' death? Do you worry about, wonder what, like, you ever been to your best friend's house and you see pictures of them when they're kids and you start asking their parents questions because there's some fun stories, Right? about humiliating things about, you know, like your buddy or your, or your spouse. You've done this at your in-law's house or whatever. It's fun to, like, kick up stories from childhood. You don't think John had some questions for Mary? You don't think they had some fun dialogue after that? He cares for her until she dies? And, and yet, now we're, we're 30, 40 years removed. J- John has lived with this reality that, oh, my gosh, I was, like, face to shoulder with the living God I saw him die on a cross, and then days later, I see him out of the grave. I see the empty grave, and then I see him out of the grave, and then I see him ascend into heaven, and I've eaten breakfast with him in the meantime. Like, this is, like, John's mind is is blown at, at a level that you and I cannot even imagine, and then he gives his life to ministry. John is, is, spends his life ministering in, in the city of Ephesus, most um, for the majority of his time, but he spends his life in ministry, pastoring churches, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. He will eventually be martyred. Well, actually, he won't be martyred because they can't kill him. All the other disciples get martyred. John, they try. They boil him in water. They boil him in oil. He won't die, right? So what do they do? They exile him to the island of Patmos. What does he do there? He gets a visit from Jesus, and he writes the book of Revelation, Okay? Now, we talk about Paul writing a lot of the New Testament, and he did, but just from a pure volume standpoint, John's done some work. This is one of the longest Gospels. Revelation is no short book. He's got three epistles in there. First John, second John, third John. Like, John has contributed significantly to the formation of the church and our faith. This is who is saying, I'm bearing witness about this. The man who is so close to Jesus. If anybody was going to know junk about Jesus that would convince him that, you know what? He was awesome, but I got some stories. It would have been John. Right? If anybody was going to cave under the pressure of martyrdom and going, you know what? Maybe he's not worth my life. It would have been John. And yet, It is John who is bearing witness to us about this book. And so John comes with a purpose so that we may believe and have life in Jesus. And the other authors of the Gospels often start with Jesus' humanity and his uh, 
physical heritage, right? They're tracing back the line of Joseph. They're tracing back the prophecies. They're walking us through. How do we know that this is the promised Messiah that, that from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, right? That's Matthew. That's why those genealogies are there so that we know that God's promises have come true. He said he was going to send the Messiah. And guess what? We can trace it all the way down through the lineage and see that indeed he has sent the Messiah, right? Luke similarly walks through those things, right? So they're starting at, we want to make sure we understand Jesus's Palestine descent that he is indeed who God said he would be. John goes, no, no, no. For you to really understand who Jesus was, we got to go all the way back. Not just the prophecies. Not just whenever the angel showed up to Mary and, and, and began to tell the story of her giving birth to God's son. He, wants, he says, you got to go all the way back. So he starts out and he says what? In the beginning. You're going to know who this Jesus is? You need to know that he was there in the beginning. Where else have we seen that language? What else starts that way? Genesis 1-1, right? This is how our Bible starts. In the beginning, God created, right? In the beginning. We're going to look at Jesus as creator. But, but today, like, we're going we're gonna to stay super focused on just this, this truth that, that John seems to be communicating to us. Um, Jesus, did, like, his story didn't start when God needed somebody to put on flesh and go and be born out of the, the womb of a virgin named Mary. His story has no beginning because he is the beginning and he is the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the God of whom Moses is told uh, when Moses says in Exodus, hey, um, okay, God, I'll go to Pharaoh, I guess, but who am I supposed to say sent me? God says, tell him I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. Like, this is, this is incredible. Like, this is the God who is, is, is putting on flesh here. This is what is being described. Like, the sense that, that not only God, he's saying to Moses in that moment, not only am I am what I am at present, like, I'm not just here because I have a purpose to deliver my people out of Egypt. Like, I am what I have been, and I am what I shall be, and shall be what I am. This, the, the, the profound implications of what are wrapped up in a statement like, I am who I am, is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But God's own words about his eternity speak to us from the pages of Scripture. Jesus confirms this later in John chapter 8. Jesus is in a, in a, a, a conflict, a, a conversation, a, a dispute with the religious leaders. Um, and, and he says, hey, uh, like he calls them out. He knows that they, they value their identity, their nationality of being children of Abraham. He says, John chapter 8, verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, whoa, 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 you're not even 50. And yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus goes, hey, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And, and, and John doesn't want us to go forward with the reading of these stories without being completely gripped 
by this reality. Look at how he structured the first couple of verses. If you'll just go to that last slide that I gave you to Mark. If you look at just how he structured these verses, he says, uh, look, at, look at the beginning and the end. This is verses one and two. And he says, in the beginning was the word. We're gonna come back to what that means in just a moment. This, this idea of the word is, is there's huge, uh, like those are deep waters that we could swim in. But, and then at the end he says, and he was with God in the beginning. Depending on how your translation is, those could be flipped and say he was uh, in the beginning with God. But nonetheless, the, the beginning of the verse and the, and the end of, of verse 2, in the beginning was the Word, and he was with God in the beginning. And then in the middle, he's going to say some things about the identity. But he first wants us to know something about the essence, the, uh, like where did he begin? Where, like He wants us to know something about the nature of this Jesus. And he says, you want to know where Jesus' story begins? It's long before ours. In fact, there's no beginning. He's the beginning and the end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So you see it's sandwiched there, and then, and then in the middle, he's going to tell us something about who this Jesus was. He was what? With God, and he was, what, and he was God. Now, this takes us back to this idea of what, like, why does John use the word? Why doesn't he say in the beginning was Jesus? And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God and he was in the beginning with God. Why, why the word? Have you ever done a study on it? Have you ever thought about this? It's an interesting, like we kind of just pass by it. We know the word becomes flesh. We know that it gets fleshed out a little bit later in John chapter one, but it, John is saying something here. The Greek word is logos, the word. Uh, he's saying logos. He's saying in the beginning was the logos. Now, for them, this would have carried significant implications. Now, there is, like, you start trying to study this, and you'll, like, you'll find there is all kinds of debate and just layers and layers because this word packs a whole bunch of uh, philosophical implications, particularly for the Greeks. The, the Greeks um, would, would throw around this idea of the logos as, as uh, trying to describe the thing that, that kind of brings reason and unity and order to the world. This was like the ultimate kind of, um, whatever the ultimate reality is, whatever their belief system, whether they were stoic or, or you know, following Philo, like, it, like whoever it was, there was this kind of, understanding that the Logos was the ultimate reality, the thing that kind of held the world together, the, the thing that we defer to as, as divine reason. Now, now, listen, we all kind of do this if we're being philosophical or if we're being pressed. Now, there's a lot of different people that say they don't, they don't really care about religion, they don't care about, you know, Christianity or any other organized religion, but, but we all know that whenever people get pressed, whenever life runs up on you and all of a sudden you realize you're not in control and you get a diagnosis, you get a phone call, you get um, whatever it may be, and, and in those moments is when we all cry out to a being beyond ourselves, isn't it? Do you notice something interesting that happened? And I don't want to I don't want to just like take advantage of this situation, but the football player, was it Hamlin? Uh, that, that his heart stopped beating on national television. What did everybody do? 
What are we doing in that moment? Everybody's praying. Well, I didn't know you were a believer. Well, I'm not, but I'm praying. Like, why? Because we realize, oh, life's out of our control. Whenever a heart stops beating, we know there's nothing we can do with our flesh. Like, we're, we're praying. People are just quick to pray. That is, a, that is a, a referencing, that is a surrendering to the logos. That is saying, I don't know what holds this world together. I don't know. It, and all kinds of different worldviews are, are saying, we're praying. We're praying. You ever notice that? When things get hard, people will pray for you, or they will say it on Facebook at least. Whether they do it or not, they will say it. We're praying. And that's not offensive to people, by and large, right? We, we, we'll throw it around just culturally. Prayers for this family, prayers for, and I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying like we, we see when humanity comes to the end of itself, we're forced to look up. This is the logos. This is a, 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 an acknowledgement that, man, something's holding this world together. Something. I don't know, like we can debate on what, Big Bang, like how it can, like, but some, there's some kind of like laws of nature However they got there, there's, there's structure to this world. There's something holding this all together. Like, there's something that we refer to. Now, for the Greeks, it was mostly an impersonal force. Right? This wasn't something that they would, would, would refer to as someone. It was a force. It was, it was uh, structure. It was things that held the, the, the world together and they ordered the cosmos, right? And so there, there's a lot of different ways that can play out. But for them, it was rarely if ever, a personal force. Now, for the Jews, when they heard the word logos, some of them might have been educated in some Greek thought or at least known enough to, to know that it's referring to some supreme kind of ultimate reality. But for the Jews, it has its own meaning because the word of God is used all throughout the Old Testament to be the very thing that that holds the dynamic power with which God accomplishes his will. We see the word of God is, is, is what creates in Genesis 1. We're going to look at that in a couple weeks. It's, it's the very word of God that brings the world into existence, isn't it? And then you, you notice that as God is calling up his prophets and, and, and throughout the history of salvation in the Old Testament, you'll see that the word of God came to fill in the blank, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses. Abraham, right? The word of God is what embodies the, the action of God. See, my words, like, they, they exist before I start talking, but they're not really, like, on display for the rest of the world, right? You understand how our word, it, it's, it's there, but it's not, it's not fully released. It's not out there for the rest of the world. The word of God is what... what God himself begins to reveal, and, and when he speaks it, it takes on its own entity, and it, it is very much the force, the thing that accomplishes his will throughout the Old Testament. So the Jews, there's, there's a historical like meaning here whenever John says the Logos. The Logos was with God in the beginning. They, they start to connect these dots. So John is, is not just uh, using nicknames for Jesus, He's drawing in a word that would have pulled in significant philosophical and historical implications for any reader that might have picked up his gospel and immediately triggered them to think in eternal and in ultimate terms. This is why he says, Jesus, like we're going to start all the way back in the beginning. 
in the beginning. The, 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 the idea of the logos is going to be something. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of ink spilled debating what did John mean? Was he drawing from this, this Greek philosopher or this one? Or was he talking mostly about the Old Testament? And, and here's what I would say. I think he has all of that in view, but most importantly, John is, 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 is concerned that we're going to look ahead with him, because as he writes this gospel, this is where he's going to flesh out exactly what the Logos is, because there are so many layers and just beautiful portions of this truth that are going to be fleshed out as John writes his gospel. And so we're, we're going to look at those as we see, as we go on and look at him as creator, as we look at him as the light and life in the coming weeks, we're going to see that all of that is filling in the gaps for us. What does it mean that is the logos, that Jesus is this ultimate reality, that the Greeks were wrong. It's not an impersonal force. It is indeed a person. It is God himself. That's who is stepping in. Like, this is what John wants us to see. You, you need to know about Jesus, and you need to know what he's done on earth. You need to know the miracles. You need to know that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You need to know that, that he talked to the woman at the well, and he sent her back into ministry. You need to know that he forgave this person. You need to know all of these things. But man, if you don't realize who is doing them, you don't realize the magnitude of who this Jesus is, you won't get it. You won't get the fullness of it. So John says, you've got to know from the start, this is the logos, the thing that everybody refers to when they come to the end of themselves, the thing that we acknowledge is greater than ourselves, holding this universe, these galaxies, just study science and the, the very small margin for error that exists within our Earth's orbit in relation to the sun. You realize that? It's tiny. Just a little bit this way or a little bit that way, and guess what? We're just like crispy bacon. Just doesn't, it doesn't go well. We fly out like it, gravity, all of those things. Like the thing that, the laws of nature, whatever that is, he, John is saying, listen, the thing that is greater than yourself, the things that scientists have studied, that philosophers have, have you know, philosophized about, like all of those things, it's Jesus and, 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 it's, and it's him. I am that I am. That man, that God is who has taken on flesh. Before you can be in awe of the incarnation, you need to be in awe of the deity of the man who incarnated. So that's why he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, you're not wrong to acknowledge that that exists, he tells the Greek. You're not wrong to know that it has power and impact, he tells the Jew. But it is that God, that Logos, that is stepping into our world. And he goes on to say he's not just a force. He's not, like, he is God. That's the, that's the big idea. So we're going to flesh out the Logos in the coming weeks. Today, I just want us to grip, be gripped by the reality that Jesus is God, that he's eternal in nature, that he is God. Again, he's there in the beginning, in the beginning, in the middle. Who is he? He was with God, and he was God. What does that mean? Well, he's, he's telling us something important. He's telling us something about the Trinity. He's telling us something about the nature of who God is. You know, he's talking to Jews that, man, if there's anything they would die for, it is the reality and the truth that God is one, right? They are disgusted and repulsed by a Roman culture that worships multiple gods. And yet, John is saying, listen, you need to know this. 
In the beginning, Jesus was there. And it's not just that he was God. That's true. But it's not just that God took on flesh and came. No, he's saying that he was with God. There's a separateness to that. An equalness, right? The same nature. That's why later when he says he's his only begotten son, that's not saying that he was created or born of God, right? This idea of begotten is, is like of the same nature, of the same material, like the way that, that humans beget other humans and bluebirds beget other bluebirds and, and so on and so forth. Even that analogy is not great because you're, you're thinking of a creation, but it's this same material, same um, reality and essence and power. He was, he was God, and yet he was there with God. So yes, he's begotten in the sense that he is of the same nature. He, he is God, and yet there is no beginning. There, is no, there will be no end. There is no moment that he was created. This is where the Nicene Creed was born, this Council of Nicaea. There was, there was like, in context with even what John is dealing with here, there's, there's this growing question about the deity or, and or the humanity of Jesus. And John says, it's both. He's fully God. It's not that God created Jesus so that he could send him into the world. It's that he was there in the beginning, and he came into the world, that he put on flesh. We'll talk about that in, in the coming weeks, the incarnation. But We had one of the students, maybe I said this last week, my mind's a little bit fried, but one of the students from uh, our time in Central Asia, one of the students called that uh, God putting on meat or wrapping himself in meat. And I'm like, oh, you're not wrong. Like, God puts on flesh. This is, this, so he's fully God. And it becomes fully man. Word was God. And the word was with God. You're going to see throughout the entire Gospels, throughout the entire New Testament, that there's reference to both God the Father and God the Son. There's equal in nature, but a difference in personhood. This is who has stepped into our world, the second person of the Trinity. This is who Jesus was. This is who John says, I laid my head on his shoulder. I watched him die on a cross. After I watched him like calm the wind and waves and tell dead people to stop being dead, then I watched him die on a cross. And John says, that wasn't a moment of weakness. That wasn't because he couldn't help. No, that was so that he may save us. John says, this is the Jesus of whom we're going to talk about. This is the Jesus of whom I'm going to write about. It's the, it's the God who was responsible for all things. This is the Logos that has come into the world. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says this about Jesus, and it's a beautiful imagery in the context of what John has written. He says, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us, what? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We're going to see that in John, that he is all that God is. He's on display. He's, he's revealing God for us. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But here's why it matters. Because that might be where you're at. Okay, cool, cool, Jordan. Like, Jesus is eternal. I got stuff, right? What about tomorrow morning? What about the burdens that are on my heart right now? 
Here's why this matters. Without the deity, without the eternality, without the divine nature of Jesus, there is no salvation. It's only this God who's able to embody flesh and accomplish for us what Jesus has accomplished. It, it, he says, after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's in Hebrews talking about who he is. This is the implications of Jesus being an eternal God. So here's why this matters. It matters when you realize the depth of your need. When you realize what's truly broken in your soul. It's in that moment that you realize only an eternal Savior can rescue you. You see, for John's readers, the, the idea of the Messiah, the, their idea of what a Messiah was going to be was, was too narrow. They were focused on their immediate needs. They wanted uh, delivery from Roman oppression. They were looking for a political or a war hero. And here's the deal. A, a mere man could have delivered that for them. You understand? Their needs were here. And honestly, a man could have overthrown Rome. Could have been their political leader. Could have restored Israel into power. Others meant it was more personal. They needed healing. They needed hope. They needed instruction. Guess what? Plenty of men healed other than Jesus, were given power either demonically or divinely from God. There was healing outside of Jesus. But to save from sin, born that men no more may die, that to save from death, that requires something beyond humanity. That requires something more than a gifted human being. That requires divinity. That requires an eternal nature. So as we enter into this book, and we're going to see Jesus interact with real people with real needs, I want to ask you, have you acknowledged the depth of your need? Have you just had a surface level relationship with Jesus and who he is? Or have you let him all the way in? Like all the way. Things you've not acknowledged that you try to keep stuffed down and you don't tell anybody else. Have you sold him short believing that he can't handle the mess that you bring? Some of you, that's your narrative. Man, yeah, but. If they knew, the church knew, if God knew, like I could never say things out loud about who I am, what I've done, what I've experienced if that's you if you've sold yourself short and sold Jesus' story short even believing that he can't fix you believing that his power isn't sufficient I want you to read Hebrews 1 again that, that yeah, God has spoken through prophets he's spoken in other ways but this is God himself sending his only begotten son the one who shares in his nature shares in his power has taken on flesh and has come to deliver us a salvation that reaches the depths of humanity we're going to see Demoniacs in cemeteries set free. We're going to see adulteresses forgiven and restored. We're going to see broken marriages healed. We're going to, we're going to go on and on and seeing 
Jesus showing the nature of God and his healing power. But if you're holding back, then you'll miss out. If you're holding your cards tight enough that you don't even want to surrender them to Jesus, then you're going to miss out on the glory of this eternal Savior who has come for us. He can handle your life. He can handle your fears. He can handle your sin, your story, whatever it is. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has seen it all. He exists outside of time, and yet this is who has come. Let's worship him in awe and wonder. Let's enter into this gospel narrative with hearts open, with eager minds that that Jesus would be made big in our lives and in our church and that we would be caught up in his eternal story of redemption that is still going on. You realize that? That's part of the good news of him being eternal is that when he stepped into earth and, and then when he died and was ascended into heaven, his story's not over. He's just begun to write it and he's sending out the, the truth through his church and through his spirit so that that good news can make it to your heart, to your soul today. Would you believe him? Would you worship him today? The Bible says you confess you're a sinner and believe that he's the savior. You shall be saved. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to make us in awe of Jesus. Wherever we find ourselves in our stories right now, in our lives, in our fears, in our sin, in our guilt, wherever we find ourselves, I pray that your spirit would come and reveal the glory of Jesus. And that that glory would overwhelm, supersede, wash away the rest of what we're bringing in. The rest of what's keeping us from you. Addictions, affairs, broken marriages, struggles, physical pain. the faith to respond, run to you, and worship you.